The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Holly Harris is the executive director of the Justice Action Network. She thinks the penal system is broken. She believes mass incarceration doesn't make us safer. And she's a Republican. Listen to Holly if you want to know how conservatives are pushing for criminal justice reform right now. Holly Harris, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So a previous podcast guest, Carol Mason, she's the president of of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She said two things during her interview that I think speak to the core of criminal justice reform. One thing she said was, the problem we have now is we think prison is the only way to hold people accountable when they break the law. And the other thing she said We've got so many people in our criminal justice system simply because they're poor. And what we ought to be doing is investing upstream in keeping people out of the system and providing them with opportunities. Do you agree with that? I do. And I would add one more point to that, which is people think that throwing people in prison makes us safer. And in fact, what we've found is that it does just the opposite. I mean, for years, we've been tossing a lot of low-level, nonviolent Uh, offenders, um, most of whom are sick, who have addiction issues or might have a mental health disorder that led them to the justice system. And we've been tossing them behind bars with, in some cases, some individuals that are dangerous. And what's happening is the low-level, nonviolent offenders are coming out worse off than they were when they came in. You know, very often they will leave incarceration. They can't find a job. They can't improve their education. They can't find adequate housing. So what are you going to do when all hope is lost? Of course, you'll return to crime and return to incarceration. So again, we have found that an increase in incarceration, in fact, can actually make us less safe. What do you say to people who say, well, I mean, people are in prison because they've done bad things. And so they should go to prison. And then once they're there, why should they be, in their words, coddled? Uh, Why should they be given education? Why should they be given drug treatment? Why should they be given the things that would help them improve their lives, especially since I, as someone on the outside, can't even afford those services myself? I would say there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. I come from a state, Kentucky, where everybody's sick. I mean, no state has been more uh, damaged by the drug scourge than my home state. And so I can just tell you that we're not ready to throw in the towel on our friends and family members. Addiction is it's it's a sickness and it must be treated. A lot of the individuals, again, who are just sitting behind bars, rotting behind bars, they're not bad people. Um, and in fact, many of them had you know, some sort of uh, illness or had a health issue that led them to be prescribed opioids, and then they got addicted to opioids. And then that addiction led them to poor choices, which led them to our justice system. So, I, I mean, I, there's so many factors now that have led to um, you know, the explosion in uh, RJ 
jails and prisons. And so many, we're no longer talking about some obscure minority of our society that's impacted um, by our broken system. Every single American family has now been impacted. So like I said, I mean, you know, the, the current system that we're operating under is unsustainable for a lot of different reasons. And so, I mean, I think we're at a point now where we uh, reform is an inevitability. People listening to you might be thinking, uh, here goes a cape up again with some, you know, do good or liberal, do good or progressive. That's not you. As you just mentioned, you're from wow. Kentucky. But you're trying to get me disinherited, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but you're coming at this from the other side of the political spectrum. You, you were, correct me if I'm wrong, the general counsel for the State Republican Party in Kentucky. That's right. Or the Um, Commonwealth. Sure. And I come from a very conservative state. Also, one of the states that is most aggressively moving forward with criminal justice reform. We've passed a felony expungement bill in Kentucky. Um, We've we've passed a a broad felony expungement. So there are a lot of felonies that actually can fall under the expungement statute in Kentucky, which allows for an individual to petition to have their record totally erased um, by a court, and that now has expanded to certain felonies. So mm-hmm. in most states, it's misdemeanors, and you have to wait you know, a certain period of time. Usually it's like 10 years. Our felony expungement year only has a five-year crime-free waiting period. So a very aggressive expungement bill, which we're also hopeful will help with workforce development in Kentucky. I think in workforce participation, Kentucky's 47th in the country. So we're trying to work on that. We've passed a a broad reentry package that um, improves treatment and job training for individuals who are incarcerated. We've passed occupational license reforms that remove barriers for people with records so that they can get jobs and support their families, turn away from crime for good. Um, We passed last year a dignity bill that eliminates the shackling of pregnant women. I saw this and I I had to We were the first state to do it. I had to read it four times to make sure I was reading correctly that it was the law to shackle pregnant women um, oh, during, d- during labor. During labor. Absolutely. And it happens all the time. And in fact, I just heard a story um, the other day from our bill sponsor. There was a, a Democratic legislator that she works with quite a bit. And uh, his wife had, had gone into labor. And one of the nurses had approached him and said, I'm so glad you all passed that, you know, elimination of, of shackling um, this past legislative session because, you know, these women um, come in here um, and they're shackled during labor. And it's it's just heartbreaking. You know, and I'm, I'm a single mother of a, a seven-year-old, and the most precious moment of my life was the birth of my son. And I just cannot imagine that moment being tainted, you know, or, or, or that moment being robbed from me by, mm-hmm. you know, being shackled to my bed and not being able to connect with my child. I mean, that's not only harmful, obviously, to the mother for so many reasons, but it's harmful to the baby, too. And considering a lot of the prison population and I would think women are women of color. And so the historical parallels there are just beyond troubling. Another thing that Kentucky did, and I think this is all part of what you're talking about, in addition to no longer requiring pregnant women to be shackled during labor, there was also the jails would be required to uh, adequate nutrition for pregnant inmates, adequate feminine hygiene products, an appropriate number of undergarments for female inmates. You needed a law... To do, you would be <laughs> to shocked. Do this? 
You'd just be shocked at the stories that have been told by so many women who've said they've had to go before judges without appropriate undergarments. Now, you can imagine, you know, how that impacts a decision that that judge is going to make. And, and it's not the fault of the woman standing before the judge. In many cases, if you don't have the money to be able to purchase the undergarments that are, I guess, the standard for that facility, then you just don't get them. And of course, you know, we're, Kentucky is a very poor state. Um, so that, you know, and that can be a very uh, significant obstacle to a lot of women who are sitting behind bars, um, most of whom, by the way, research shows have been victims of a terrible trauma, like a sexual assault or a sexual abuse. And they had turned to addiction, which of course led to bad choices, which of course led them to our justice system. And here we are victimizing them all over mm-hmm. again. It really... It, it was just um, passing that bill, I think, was one of the great achievements of my career, helping to pass that bill, rather. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think it's your background as a Republican? Is that what helped get all of these things through in Kentucky? You were able to you were able to speak the language or at least speak the language of criminal justice reform in a way that. Republicans could hear it and move on it. You know, I would say these issues now in Kentucky just really don't know political boundaries. There are extremely progressive legislators like Gerald Neal in Louisville and extremely conservative legislators, um, you know, like a, a Julie Rocky Adams, who, um, again, have crossed the aisle and just regardless of their political differences, have joined together to work on these issues. Um, there is, however, a certain faction of the legislature, and I wouldn't even say that this is a you know, particularly political, but there is a certain faction that still believes, you know, that we should just lock them up and throw away the key. And what's so interesting to me, and we're seeing this at the federal level, too, with opponents of the federal legislation, they keep citing to these terrible anecdotes of these individuals who have gotten out of prison and and done something terrible. And they're indicting themselves because, of course, these things are happening under the current regime. And they want to keep doing the same thing over and over, and they expect to get different results. And of course, we know that's the definition of insanity. What we're saying is, you're right. These things are terrible. And they're operating under the rules that you want to keep on the books, many of which are decades old. You know, we've changed our cell phones. We've changed our... you know, we've updated our technology. We've updated our hairstyles. Thank God. You know, but but what Speak we do, for yourself. but we're not going to you know update our our sentencing laws that we now know make us less safe. It's just it's baffling to me. But I think we're really now we've gotten over the hurdle, um, which is you know educating folks on on these policies. We've polled in about a dozen states around the country, and it's overwhelming support for these reforms. And I, I do believe it's because we're now in a time when one in three American adults has a criminal record. So again, every single American family has had some sort of interaction with the justice system, and most of them believe that it needs significant transformational change. I think it was in an interview that you did on C-SPAN or MSNBC, one of the one of the channels where you said, if you go to church on Sunday and you look you know, to your right or to your left, one of the three, three of you 
is been in jail or mixed up in the criminal justice system. Exactly. And, you know, again, we've got to remove the stigma of incarceration. Um, you know, and again, I, I come from a state where everyone has, you know, had some sort of interaction with an individual who's afflicted with an addiction issue or a mental illness. Um, you know, we actually have one of the largest uh, American Legion posts in um, my hometown of Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And did you know that 8% of the individuals who are incarcerated in this country are veterans. Hmm. 8%. And more than half of them report having a mental disorder. I mean, how tragic is that? You know, these individuals come back from serving our country. And, you know, obviously they've got some significant psychological issues from a lot of the, the trauma they've experienced. And instead of helping these individuals, you know, they turn to, you know, uh, uh, drugs um, and develop these addiction issues. And we're just going to toss them behind bars and we say, well, they've made a mistake. They deserve it. I mean, that's to me, it's incredible to me that that any um, lawmaker in this country can say these things and get away with mm-hmm. it. Um, so there is a big push, if you believe the reports, by the White House to get criminal justice reform done. Talk about the efforts that are that are that you are a part of on the federal level. Well, first of all, I want a disclaimer here that I have long been skeptical of the federal work. You know, I've always just thought Washington is a racket, (laughs) you know. Um, It's just so difficult to get anything done. It's just total gridlock all the time absolute partisanship because there's a real disconnect between, you know, what members are saying and the views that they espouse and what's happening in their own backyards. Mm -hmm. However, I will say um, I've now been to the White House on several occasions. I've met with Jared Kushner. Um, I was uh, pleasantly surprised with his level of policy expertise on these issues. Yes. And he's very deeply committed. Um, I, I do think he's now sort of understanding the gridlock that has frustrated so many of us. This isn't going to be easy. I will say, too, that the president has come around, certainly since a lot of the, you know, lock him up and throw away the key rhetoric um, from the campaign trail. And whether that, you know, is attributed to, you know, his divide with the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, um, or, you know, maybe some of the stories that have, you know, brought have been brought to his attention by folks like Kim Kardashian. And, you know, I mean, I know there there are those out there who've smirked at that and laughed at that. But I'll tell you, whatever it takes, I mean, whoever it takes, whatever it takes to get this president to understand the crisis that we're in in this country um, and get him to lean in on some of these folks on the Hill that just, you know, want to cling to these old 1980s and 1990s policies that the states have proven to us, you know, don't work. And, and you know, there are, what, 30 states now in this country that have implemented some significant level of, of criminal justice reform. And these states have um, consistently seen lower crime rates, lower recidivism rates. You know, they've made their communities safer. And so, truly, if you want to be tough on crime, and I think the president is now seeing this, you want to be tough on crime, reform is where it's at. Mm-hmm. What, what are the, the three big things on the federal level that you are hoping— um, the president will be able to sign into law. 
Well, of course, the most controversial, I would say, um, you know, are the sentencing reforms, which actually the reforms that are on the table in the package that's been negotiated, I would call them uh, skinny sentencing. Um, so, you know, we're taking just sort of a first step in reforming these unduly harsh mandatory minimum sentences, you know, that resulted in injustices like what happened to Alice Johnson, the individual that the uh, that the president um, granted clemency to, you know, who had a, a first time drug offense and goes up for 20 years. I mean, this grandmother, uh, you know, I just I just fail to see um, how spending that amount of, of, of resources and time and money and energy on incarcerating this individual, you know, makes us safer. Um, and so I, I do think he's starting to the president's starting to see that sentencing reform is warranted and it's the, it's time for it. So, of course, you know, I'd put that at the top of the list. Um, obviously, you know, we all want prison reforms, too, but we want them done the right way. Um, we want to ensure that there's adequate job training and reentry programming for individuals that are going to be, you know, leaving incarceration because, of course, you know, can't find a job and you can't improve your education or secure housing or if you're just not prepared to reenter society after you've been isolated from it for so long you're very likely going to return to crime. So prison reforms are important. Um, And then, of course, uh, the reforms for incarcerated women. Um, And this has just not been talked about enough. There are provisions in this bill that eliminate the shackling of pregnant women and actually provide for more time for incarcerated mothers, um, that they can spend more time with their babies after they're born, which is, you know, incredibly important. Um, Sheila Jackson Lee on the House side, I want to give her a lot of credit for continuing to be at the table. Um, She's not there yet to support this, this bill. But really pushing hard to expand the provisions that are going to improve conditions for incarcerated women because women are the fastest growing segment of the prison population and people don't talk about that enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another podcast guest, Andrea Ritchie. Uh, who's written a book, Invisible No More, she's all about raising awareness of the fact that, particularly for women of color, that as much as we talk about African-American men being mixed up in the criminal justice system and also their involvement um, with with police, there's an equally um, pernicious problem with with women of color. I'm surprised though, that Sheila Jackson Lee, like you're having to convince her to come on board. What's the issue? Is well, it the that's fact- the opposite challenge that we have now, right? It's you know, it's finding the sweet spot where we can get enough individuals um, who have been reluctant to support reform and really aren't that educated on it because there are still a significant number of members on the Hill who've not heard the stories of reform. It's just not an issue that they're really deeply involved with. Um, but then there's the other side of the spectrum where um, and, and, and some of this is strategy and it's smart strategy where there are members who don't want to support this package because they don't feel it goes far enough. Hmm. And I do think that, you know, certainly Sheila Jackson Lee is one of those lawmakers who's going to push for the broadest possible package. And, you know, I really credit her for, I mean, she even said, look, the stuff that's on the table, a lot of this stuff is good, but it just doesn't go far enough. And here we are, you know, yes, there was a prison reform package that, you know, it expanded um, compassionate and elderly release. It provided for reforms for incarcerated women. It had the prison reforms, um, but but also um, it expanded the good time credit that the, the Bureau of Prisons said would um, make 4,000 currently incarcerated individuals immediately eligible for release. There were a lot of good things in that House package, but now on the Senate side, we're now looking 
at sentencing reforms because there were individuals who held out and said, you know, look, we're just not going to support this until, you know, it's got the sentencing piece in it. And so I, I right now, the package that's get, been negotiated is a really good bill that I think can get the consensus, bipartisan support that's necessary to be passed. And yet there are people in the Senate like Tom Cotton oh, of stop. Arkansas, <laughs> who, you know... I was in such a good mood. <laughs> but but it, 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 this gets to two things. One, you said you've got you've got legislators who are like clinging to old, old views of, of criminal justice. And in the story that I read from a few days ago, Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton, is the one who brought up Willie Horton, that, you know, do you want to have a Willie Horton situation? And the other thing is... We, we all know that the president is susceptible to uh, adopting the view of the last person who's talked to him. And so with someone like Senator Cotton talking to President Trump, how, how do you counter that? How do you counter him? Well, and look, we've got to constantly be vigilant about, you know, ensuring that he's not spreading misinformation, much like, you know, um, Jeff Sessions and some of his cohorts were doing, um, you know, while we were trying to get the bill passed on the House side. Um, You know, it's real interesting. I just don't know how can anyone take Senator Cotton seriously anymore. He's such an outlier. When he goes around and talks about how we have an under-incarceration problem in this country, even people who are skeptical of reform disagree with that. (laughs) You know, we have... 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And I don't believe it's because Americans are so much more evil than the rest of the world. You know, um, I believe the individuals who put these laws on the books, and by the way, it was Democrats and Republicans. It was Bill Clinton who signed that 94 crime bill Mm -hmm. that put all of those unduly harsh mandatory minimum sentences on the books and incentivized states to do the same, by the way. And Hillary Clinton went out and stumped for that bill, and Republicans voted for it. Republicans and Democrats got us into this mess, and Republicans and Democrats are going to have to get us out of it. The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow. And to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives, and perhaps one day, yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. I, I remember the time when that crime bill was passed. There was a lot of fear go, uh, around the country because of rising crime rates and um, I think the crack, crack epidemic was was um, still raging. And how I mean, I understand why that crime bill, why that crime bill was passed and why Democrats and Republicans pushed for it. But why do you think that Republicans are they're they're just clinging to the the old ways of looking at things? You know, and I I wouldn't even just say it's Republicans again, because you have some of the most conservative members of the Senate, like Mike Lee from Utah, you know, who's one of the most zealous advocates for sentencing reforms, you know, your most aggressive reform policies. I would just say, um, at, at least with respect to Senator Cotton, he does appear to. 
I don't know, sort of be positioning himself to get a certain um, a constituency out there to, I don't know, support him for maybe a run for higher office. Um, what I would say to him is I would higher take a I would <laughs> I would take a closer look at your polling. Um, we've polled in conservative states like Kentucky, uh, like Louisiana, um, and and I mean Oklahoma. Uh, overwhelming support across the political and ideological spectrum for these reforms. And I'll tell you, some states he ought to be thinking about real. Uh, real, real closely, he ought to be thinking about Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. In in Ohio, sentencing reforms, reforming mandatory minimum sentences, polled at 87%. Now, can you think of a politician out there who polls at 87% or an issue that polls at 87%? I mean, you know, I, I think he's he is underestimating the voters, Voters are very educated on these issues. And again, it's because every single American family has now dealt with this. Well, there's one one politician who does get 80 something percent support among voters, a particular niche of support. That's the president within the Republican Party. His approval rating is in the high 80s. And if you're someone like Senator Cotton, who might be aspiring to higher office, as you say, He's going to pay attention to that number. But I want to talk about President Trump specifically, because you said before you've gone to the White House on many occasions. You've met with Jared Kushner to talk about about these issues. He is on board. He's knowledgeable, you say, uh, of these issues. Have you had a chance? You had a chance to sit with the president and talk and be in the room with him where these issues are discussed. So I, I spoke to the president on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. I did have a very brief period to um uh, to speak with him about these issues. And it, um, you know, it just didn't seem like it was something that he was thinking about. You know, I don't know that he is an ideologue on criminal justice reform policy. I don't know that he really has a specific perspective like he certainly does on, you know, immigration issues or trade issues. Um, I do think he is open to hearing both sides um, of an argument. Um, it does concern us. You know, we, we certainly want to have the last word with the president and anything that he hears, we want to be able to counter. What I would say to him right here on this podcast is, you know, be very wary of individuals who are looking to replace you. Um, hmm. And I would I would look to the states. The states are our laboratories of democracy. That is where we try out these policies and see if they work. And again, We've seen time and time again that these reforms, lower crime rates, lower recidivism rates, strengthen families, save, by the way, significant taxpayer dollars in Georgia alone. Governor Deal in Georgia, again, one of the most aggressive uh, um, and zealous supporters of criminal justice reform policy. They've saved, you know, $250 million on the reforms that have passed. And that's money, by the way, that could be spent on infrastructure improvements, economic development, education, places where if we're spending more resources, perhaps we won't see as many people entering our justice system to begin with. So I think that's the big picture that we ought to be showing the president. Sometimes we get buried in all the minutiae and the jargon of of criminal justice reform policy. And I think we've got to step back and look at the big picture here. Um, Okay, so I'm going to step back and I'm going to look at the big picture here. And the big picture to me says no matter what Jared Kushner does, no matter what um, the Justice Action Network does, no matter what the proponents on the Hill do, 
I don't know if you guys can trust the president. And I say that because... Or any politician, really? Well, well, I'm about to name some specifics. So there in the Roosevelt Room before a a live national audience meeting on immigration reform, he said he wanted, quote, a bill of love to deal with the dreamers and then actively killed the legislation. Um, Another Roosevelt Room televised meeting this time on gun safety where he said like we're going to we need to do something he he said that maybe we should just take the guns away to the point where Diane Feinstein the senator from California who I've never seen smile or I should say I've never seen a picture of her smiling in the newspaper but the picture of her seated next to president Trump beaming at the fact that the president was saying things that were supportive of gun safety, and yet nothing nothing was done or has been done. So why are you confident that President Trump um, will not yank the football away from you the way he did immigration and gun safety? Well, and I, I do want to check myself here because the great challenge of working in this space. And I think what makes it special and sort of the final frontier is that we try to block out all of these other issues, um, some of which are so incredibly important. Um, But our coalition, um, you know, there are so many of our members who are going to fight each other on these other issues. They're going to fight each other on gun control. They're going to fight each other on immigration policy. They are in lockstep agreement, though, on criminal justice reform, which makes it special and gives us a real opportunity to really change laws that change lives. And as difficult as that is, you know, we all check our politics and our other views on other issues at the door. We try to walk in with an open mind and an open heart. And that's when you see, you know, individuals like Vanita Gupta with the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights sitting next to Grover Norquist with Americans for Tax Reform and them, you know, uh, in lockstep agreement on these policies. And, and I, I don't really know of another issue where, you know, those two individuals would stand together and say, OK, it's time to um, achieve transformational change for our justice system. They have different perspectives and they may message this differently, but they're in lockstep agreement on the policy. So, uh, you know, again, I, I, I get what you're saying and I understand, but I'm, we're trying to block that out and really achieve something significant for so many people in our country who are suffering. In the, the latest White House meeting on criminal justice reform, which I believe was um, sort of mid-August, not, not, not that long ago, where um, the proponents of criminal justice reform came out and said, you know, we got the, pre- you know, the president is for this, might not come up for a vote until after the midterms, but, you know, we're pushing hard. And then you've got um, the Justice Department. That was and outrageous. A- Attorney General Sessions puts out this statement. His spokeswoman. I tweeted put- about this, by the way. Oh, did you see it? <laughs> I, I, I did see it. But let me for the for the audience. Here's the statement. And then you can talk about the tweets that you sent out in your reaction. Justice Department. We're pleased the president agreed that we shouldn't support criminal justice reform that would reduce sentences, put drug traffickers back on our streets and undermine our law enforcement officers who are working night and day to reduce violent crime and drug trafficking in the middle of an opioid crisis. It was the most outrageous, um, embarrassing 
statement that I, I, I mean, truly, I understand the argument that the Justice Department should be independent with respect to its criminal investigations, but with respect to the legislation that will be supported by this administration and the policy development that's occurring within uh, the White House, um, you know, they they serve at the pleasure of the president. Um, it's you know, it's, it's really interesting because this has been going on for a long time. I worked on the industrial hemp issue and we sued actually under the Obama administration um, when the um, uh, the Department of Justice seized our hemp seeds in Kentucky. Um, and by the way, Mitch McConnell was not always a great proponent of legalizing industrial hemp, but he is now. And we'll get to that later because mm-hmm. I think there is really sort of a parallel in what we can do with criminal justice reform. But, um, you know, I remember when we sued and, and I went um, to, to court and federal court and I, you know, all these lawyers walk in, all these folks, you know, Customs and Border Patrol and the DEA and um, Justice Department proper and, you know, Eric Holder. Everyone had a different position. And I thought, how is this appropriate? Again, I, we're, we're conflating independence with respect to investigations and independence with respect to policy and support or opposition to legislation. And uh, we got to get that all cleared up. I mean, there is a serious problem. The Department of Justice does not exist on an island. These individuals have not been elected to pass legislation or oppose legislation or, uh, you know, these individuals serve at the pleasure of the president and should be supporting what the president says on policy. So, I mean, if they if they want to disagree with him, you know, you do so in private. I mean, I've been a part of administrations. You know, there's an individual who's elected and and you serve at the pleasure of that individual. So I, it's, it was outrageous. I I don't for the life of me understand how this continues, you know, over the better part of a decade through, you know, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. It has happened in both administrations. And at some point, can somebody exercise some oversight here? <laughs> well, at least, at least in the in during the Obama administration with Attorney General Holder and carrying over to Attorney General Lynch, there were some sentencing loosening or whatever they could do uh, without getting Congress involved. And then Attorney General Sessions comes in and says, never mind. It's been very frustrating, especially with respect to we haven't talked about civil asset forfeiture. You know, there's another, you know, very serious issue. It's where, you know, the government can take your property even if you've never even been charged with a crime. You know, if they believe that your property was used in the commission of a crime, they can just take it and seize it. And then you have to go to court, hire a lawyer, go to court, you know, deal with the you know complexities of the justice system on your own and sue to get your stuff back. And in most most places, the burden is on you to prove your property innocent. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I mean, when I it's just it's funny because when I'll say I'll, I'll talk about civil asset forfeiture to, you know, a lot of folks who really don't don't know anything about the issue. They're like, that is not happening in America. <laughs> A hundred percent it's happening. And Jeff Sessions seeks to, you know, really sort of employ these tactics um, at an even higher level. Um, And that's just it's just incredibly disturbing. Um, You're a former uh, television news uh, journalist. Sure. They called me the human popsicle back in Kentucky. (laughs) I'm on I-75. Don't come out here. So I, I would love to get your how do you feel about. The things that the president says about the press calling um, stories 
quote, fake news, or even worse to, in, in my opinion, calling press, quote, the enemy of the people. I obviously disagree with that and have so many um, members of the press who are my friends, even when they've not been friendly to my issue. Um, that said, though, I, I do think, you know, it's funny. I was watching um, Fox News the other night and I watched, you know, Fox for about 45 minutes and then I switched over and I watched MSNBC for about 45 minutes. They were covering the same set of circumstances. But if you watched both of those channels, you wouldn't think they were talking about the same things. I mean, because the perspectives were so just totally on opposite sides of the planet. And um, I, I do worry that we're getting away from objective journalism. And now so many journalists are also editorializing. And um, and I, I do worry a bit about that because, um, you know, when I when I was in journalism, when I went to, to, to school for journalism, you know, it was so incredibly important to maintain your objectivity. Um, and so there are those of us, um, and I, I did it, you know, sometimes I inserted my opinions into my stories. So <gasps> I, I know, I know. I'm under indictment, too. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I do think there are problems on both sides of the, the political spectrum with that. Um, and, you know, to me, um, I'm just really hopeful that we can get back to a place in our country where, you know, we've got a, a free and well-respected objective press um, that is uh, zealously doing its job. Um, and and if that's the case, um, hopefully we can start focusing on the issues again. One of the frustrating things about working in policy now is that you just can't. I mean, there's so many other things taking up all the oxygen in the room. Nobody wants to talk about this stuff. I mean, and it's one of the great crises in our country right now. And we're at a place where we could really do something about it. But it's just, you know, all these other issues, you know, whether it's um, Stormy Daniels or Russia Gate or whatever. There's so many other things. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but can't we find a space? And I'm certainly grateful we have it here with your podcast where we can talk about the issues again. A year from now, do you think um, you'll, you'll come back a year from now? Will we be talking about a criminal justice reform law? We might signed be, into law. I believe we'll be having that celebratory bourbon that we talked about before the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Holly Harris, executive director of the Justice Action Network. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. 
or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Homan. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.